Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I am your host. And I hope everybody is doing well out there. I am still getting over this stupid cold that has been plaguing me for the last couple of weeks. And yes, it is a cold. Every single person I tell that I'm sick, they say, is it COVID? I say, nope, it's not. I got tested. I'm vaccinated, but guess what? Apparently, you can still get fucking Corona, even if you're vaccinated. So um, was doubly sure that I don't have the COVID, just a really mean cold. So I apologize for my voice. And I want to give a special thanks to my editor, Ben Crannell, who did an amazing job on this episode of editing out my coughs. This episode is a little choppy in a few places because that's him having to edit out my coughing and all that. So apologies, for that, but um, definitely on the up and up. So I hope everybody is staying well, healthy, and getting out there and riding your damn bikes. Now, first off, I'd like to give a thank you to all of the newest sustaining members of the Bikes for Death podcast that have signed up over at Patreon. Essentially, these are my, my new bosses. So let's welcome Thomas Sutton, Derek Atkins, Mike Wallace, Joe, oh shit. Oh, that's a hard one. Joe Vaketich, John Hickman, Kyle Forshaw, Randy Wintle, Kyle Anstein, and. <laughs> oh, I love you guys. Uh, someone registered under the name Butt Cheeks, Butt Cheeks, um, and no further information. So, special shout out to. All of my new employers over at patreon.com, y'all are getting me closer to making this my full-time job, and I appreciate you so much. Additionally, if you enjoy this show, please consider supporting the businesses that help make this show possible. Today's episode was brought to us by Ruby Coffee, and I've got Jared here to talk to us about his approach to coffee while bikepacking. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for having me on. And um, yeah, absolutely. I'm always up for talking coffee and bikes, especially together. So, (laughs) you know, it really depends on um, how far I'm going and what I'm doing. So in this case, it was a 130-mile, two-day trip. So a lot of it was on some gravel roads or some like ATV and trails. So it was uh, relatively like moderate, um, difficulty to easy. And we were pretty casual. So we stopped a few places along the way. So for my coffee approach, I guess it really just depends on, um, how much time I'm allowing for a stop. So if I'm looking for something on the quicker side, that's a little bit more convenient. I will use instant coffee. So at Ruby, we make some of our own instant coffee, And I guess close to that is we also have these steeped packs. But if I'm just looking for like a quick um, cold coffee, I'll actually just throw instant coffee into my water bottle and shake it up and have a cold iced coffee kind of experience. But really, I mean, I love making pour over coffee in the morning. So what I'll typically do and what I did on this trip is I had just ground coffee. So I bring pre-ground coffee and a small pour-over dripper and just a jet boil. And I just put my filter into the, the dripper and make a fresh pour-over. Um, so 
I just kind of like eyeball the ratios and make sure my water's hot enough. One thing that I think helps to boost the flavor a little bit is adding in a couple stirs while you're making pour over. Um, that's something that's a tip that I kind of give to people frequently. When you're talking about stir it, are you talking about stirring the actual grounds? Yeah, yeah. Actually, we call it the slurry. So when there's like grounds mixed with water, that's the the coffee brew, the coffee slurry. So get a spoon in there, stir it a few times. That helps to get a more even brew, a nice even extraction. So that usually translates to slightly better sweetness. Well, from the man himself, Jared Linsmeyer over at Ruby Coffee, uh, if y'all are interested in checking out some of these coffee offerings that they have, they're available at rubycoffeeroasters.com. Thanks for coming on today, Jared. Thanks, Patrick. Have a great day. And remember, listeners of this show get 15% off their first order or 20% off their first order of a subscription. Just use Bikes or Death at checkout. Today's episode is also brought to us by a new advertising partner, Ren Sports. And instead of telling you about Ren Sports, my guest today is actually an employee of Ren. And this episode is a product of essentially a business call. Cameron and I got on the phone to discuss a potential partnership with Bikes or Death and Ren Sports. And it didn't take long for me to figure out that Cameron is one cool dude with a lot of great experiences in the outdoors, specifically in land management and working with public lands. But he's also a very accomplished expedition cyclist, as he calls himself, with some truly epic adventures under his belt. And he's also the race organizer for a couple pretty cool events. So as we were talking on this business call, I basically just said, all right, let's push pause on this and schedule a time to talk on the podcast because this is really a powerful story about how bicycles and the cycling community can help to heal an area, to heal a people, and to move on to bigger and better things. So I appreciate Cameron coming on and sharing this powerful story with us. We're going to learn a little bit about him, Ren Sports, and what they are doing over there. And then we're going to get into what I think is one of the coolest stories I've heard about the power of the bicycling community. Again, when I when we recorded this one, I was uh, really not feeling too well. So apologies on my end for uh, not being 100% with it. But luckily, I think Cameron makes up for any of my shortcomings. He's truly an impressive guy, and I'm so grateful that he's on Team Bike. So without further ado, let's have Miles Arbor take it away with the Bikes for Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. All right. Well, today on the podcast, we got Cameron Sanders. Cameron, I thought it'd be a good idea if we just kind of 
detailed or gave a little bit of background on this podcast and how it came to be because you and I actually connected when Greg Hardy, Greg Hardy was the one who put us in contact, right? Yep. Yep. I got to give a shout out to my boy, Greg, man. When I put out a call to action and asked, you know, Hey, put me in contact with some companies. Who do you know? Greg was a superstar and like hooked me up with a lot of people. And I got an email from you pretty quick and you were like, man, I'm very interested in talking. So we got on the phone. Uh, you worked there at Ren Sports, which we'll get into here in a little bit. But we hopped on the phone. And to be honest with you, when I went into that call, I didn't know what to expect because, yes, Ren is a bicycle company, but I didn't know if it would be a perfect fit with bike packing and adventure biking and stuff like that. But we got to talking and uh, I realized that, number one, I think it really is a good fit. And uh, y'all are going to be sponsoring and, and advertising uh, here with Bikes or Death, which is exciting. But as we got to talking, I'm like, holy shit, this guy, Cameron, he's the real deal. Um, you've got some crazy stories. You've been on some crazy adventures. And so as we were talking, I'm like, bro, we need to like do this on the podcast. So, you know, I just wanted to give a little bit of background because uh, you do work for Ren Sports. Y'all are going to be sponsoring and, and advertising on the podcast. But we also just wanted to talk because you're a, you're a cool freaking dude. So, yeah, with that out of the way, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Like you said, I got an email, uh, a call to action from Greg over at Rockgeist. And anytime I got an email from Greg, it, it floats up in my queue. And uh, that couldn't have been any more true than that email because I had just gotten back from a month in Oregon where I had been totally off the radar of email. So my email backlog was extensive. I saw, oh, there's one for Greg, bikes or death. And yeah, it's been nothing but but good ever since. So I'm really excited to be here in terms of uh, my own self and helping represent the Rin brand. Some of your followers might know my channel as, as Renaissance Cyclist on Instagram. And I have some YouTube videos and some videos on uh, bikepacking.com out there as well. Yeah, you've done a lot of stuff as we got to talking. I mean, there's so many things that you've done and we won't be able to probably talk about all of them, unfortunately. And that's one of the problems I run into is even in like an hour and a half long podcast or whatever, it's like you still can't hit on everything. But, you know, the, again, this is going to be a little bit different, but I always ask my guest where you work. In this case, you work for uh, one of our uh, advertising partners. Uh, so what do you do over there at Ren? And also, I don't know to the degree you can, I know that we talked a lot in the background about the new direction Ren is going to be going in, some of the new products you'll have coming out that are going to be more appealing to bikepacking and adventure cyclists. So yeah, give us a spiel. Yeah. So it, a lot of you probably don't know Ren. If you do know Ren, you probably know Ren Sports for what they've kind of dominated for a long period of time, the niche market of fat bike suspension. They do not only fat bike suspension, but other suspension as well. But all of their suspension is inverted suspension. But they also do more than just suspension forks. And that's uh, their work in the fat bike realm is how I got connected with them. Uh, the Owen Sports, Kevin Wren, uh, worked at Shimano, worked at Cannondale, worked at Bell Sports. It's been an entire lifetime working in the cycling industry, knows the ins and outs, kind of as a retirement project started Rin Sports and he's super active on Facebook and Instagram and it's always fun seeing the owner of a company like engaging with all of the clientele 
And um, he had started following me on social media and just liked all my winter content. And uh, at some point said, hey, we're trying to develop a damper that works down to 30 below zero. You seem like somebody who could actually go out and spend sustained periods of time at that temperature. Would you mind giving us some feedback and maybe helping provide some photos of it. So I didn't apply for a job at Ren Sports. Um, it was never my intention to work for the cycling industry. I worked as a park ranger for, for 13 years. And um, yeah, it was just serendipitous that Ren had grown as a company mostly because of their dominance in fat bike suspension to the point where they could make some deeper investments in product. And uh, they were looking for somebody to help them design and market it and just point them in a direction that would help grow it where they've done well, which is like, like an interest niche corner of the market. So we're doing like a whole new brand expansion with my onboarding to the company. We build cycling components for an adventurous world. Besides just cold weather, we're diving into places that as a bike packer since 2010, the parts of the market where I've just been waiting for something to come out to fulfill the niches that I want to have. And, um, you know, there were, there are things that we're working on now that in 2012, I was like, Oh, that's going to come out next year. And decade later, some of those voids have yet to be filled. What is your role at Ren Sports now? So my title is vice president of uh, product development and marketing. So we're a small, small company. We're nowhere near the Foxes or the Rock Shocks and Trams of, of the world. So there's just a, a handful of us. If you call the company, you're going to get one of the couple of owners and or myself. But it's really cool to work from the very bottom up. So I get to design components and work with the engineers and test them and not only go through the, you know, the, the standard ISO testing where we basically shake things to death, but then actually put it in the dirt. Like we have uh, a new mid fat gravel fork coming out and some adventure bars coming out. And after we tested them in the lab, we actually, I, I took them on a thousand mile trip. And that's not just only testing it and working out any of the kinks, but that's also doing all the marketing, getting the photos, the images that we're showing people is is a culture that we really do. We're actually going out and not driving to the top of a mountain and snapping a photo and then driving back to you know the computer and uploading it onto the website. These products are months in process. Once we actually get the product in hand, which during COVID, you know, we waited a year to get some of these products just in our hands to test. And then we're, we're literally biking a thousand miles on them before anybody even gets to have a teaser. And this is exactly what made me personally excited about working with Ren is really you, your experience that you bring to the company that's going to, um, it's a, just a different market. Like you've said, it's, it, you, they started out mostly in winter fat biking, really carved out a great niche for the company there. And what I thought was cool is how, you know, Kevin brought you in and is allowing you to, it seems like, fulfill some of your own visions and fulfill, you know, like you said, some of those niches in the market that just haven't been filled yet. And he's really, I mean, you speak to this, but it seems like he's given you a lot of liberty to create that type of uh, product or the brand. 
I have almost full autonomy. And, you know, if, if Kevin was here, you know, over my shoulder, he don't, don't give away all of your tricks, but like, I, I, you know, I got a whole notebook full of things that I want, you know, we, you know, are we, are we just going to stay in the components of a bike? I have a lot of different concepts for if we continue to grow and do well in bike packing that, you know, a lot of camping gear is meant for ultralight backpacking, not biking. And there is a lot of overlap in some areas. There's just value sets that are much different when it comes to loading up a bike. Like, like volume is a huge premium. And, you know, for example, you know, I, I was looking at the, the mid-style tents and, and, you know, a carbon black diamond fold-up tent pole is nice and light, but it's more voluminous than it needs to be than if you, like, made it telescopic. You know, do we want to get into tent poles? We've only been a bike company, but it kind of makes sense if adventure cycling is where we're going and there's a way we could take our carbon fiber knowledge because we work at one of the best factories making t- uh, carbon fiber in the world. How can we apply that to camping? to make bikepacking better. And these are the conver- kind of conversations we have all the time. And I think we'd, we'd already be seeing more of a robust product lineup if I didn't come on board and like right as COVID was taking yeah. off. Uh, <laughs> it is a crazy time to just tow the status quo in the industry, let alone try to innovate and create things that nobody else makes. It was kind of, uh, it's been amazing for me coming on board because again, my background's in land management. It's not in product development, but it's like 95% of the entire cycling product development world is, is basically pulling out Legos from a toolbox that has already been pre-established and they're just choosing this spec and this spec and this spec. And then the, the pieces come together. You have a frame or a fork or a seat post or a handlebars. And it's one reason why so many different components exist, but they all kind of look the same. And for me, I've exploited that as far as I go before. I'm like, none of the Lego pieces fit anymore. I need to, we need to start from scratch and build something from the ground up that has this intended purpose. So I'm curious, what are you drawing on for experience in this role? Because you are manufacturing or designing, coming up with ideas for products, but your background is in, you know, rangering and land management, which we're going to talk about here in a little while. So yeah, I mean, do you just have an eye for this kind of stuff or or what? I am fascinated by it. Uh, and I've always built my own bikes and I build my own computer and and I, most of COVID building a new camera lens for some of the videos that I shoot. So I'm a tinker by nature. My garage looks like a legit bike shop. I worked for Fatback Bikes for a while, you know, just wrenching. I do not have a background in engineering, but they share a lot of uh, the, the same t- tendrils because uh, working with engineers and bringing identifying needs in the cycling, especially the adventure cycling world, and then translating that to the engineers and then communicating that to the general public in building and designing cycling components is is very similar to translating government policies and land policies and natural science and heritage aspects of, of our public shared spaces in the general public there's a lot of overlap there. I've, I've worked to, I feel as a, a translator and almost cheerleader for outdoor recreation and um, the outdoors my entire life, regardless of whether it's designing bike components or donning the Stetson park ranger hat. 
getting a chance to talk to you really makes me feel good about you know, partnering with a company like Ren Sports. I mean, you know, it's one thing to make good products, but it's also, for me, uh, important to know what kind of company you're working with and the kind of people that are there and, you know, do they have good initiatives and what lines up with, you know, my own personal uh, belief system or values or whatever. Now, what are you most excited about with Ren? You know, we have a lot of really cool products coming down the pipe, but I'm really excited for an idea that we're still toying around with, which is um, I have a converted people mover bus that I've I've made into like a tiny home. Uh, and I have had this pipe dream since like five years ago to do bike packing clinics that are on tour throughout the country. Uh, I used to give bikepacking clinics as a park ranger about how to safely do bikepacking and do route development. And since Rin Sports really aspires to not just build and sell product, but to be a active player in this community, one of the ideas that we're toying with is the company doing a traveling bikepacking free hands-on clinic that would be on tour throughout North America. Um, so we're looking at 2022 and how those stars might align. So that, that's got me really stoked. Yeah, that's got me stoked too. I mean, and that, and that's it, it speaks to what I was saying about as a company, y'all spending money to educate people on how to recreate outside on their bike responsibly, safely, you know, whatever is going to be in your in your little courses, but educating people on on how to actually do it. I've found, and I'm sure you're saying this as well, is the uh, the growth in in bikepacking is just astronomical, and 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 so with that, you're going to get a lot of people that that are seeking out that information. And so it's one thing I try to do on the podcast is I hope I fill a little bit of that void, but um, there's a lot of people coming, and I think that's that's a fantastic idea. And if y'all get that up and running, I definitely want to come and uh, check it out for myself. And yeah, I just want to go see it. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we are very much aware of some of the silver linings that, that COVID has um, brought to the outdoor rec world, which, I mean, we have more new people in cycling than ever before, and people have been stuck at home. And I know with all my correspondence still with the Forest Service and National Park Service, there are more people outdoor recreating than ever before. Uh, so as a company, we're trying to be mindful of that. And I'm very happy to nerd out about offsets and head tube angles and suspension mechanics and all that stuff. But really, I'm way more excited to talk about how you go and bike pack and route plan. And I used to do environmental ed at the very beginning of my career, and I still feel like I'm an educator. And the best way I feel like to help run sports in my position there is to do general, genuine, real education not necessarily like look at the bells and whistles and doodads. I feel like people will find us naturally if we do the right thing. I couldn't agree more. It's what, you know, again, it's what really drew me to, to wanting to partner up with you guys. I, I appreciate all those things. Can we talk about the beefcake? Is that allowed? I know you yeah, mentioned Yeah, it. we can totally talk about the beefcake. In fact, that's the product that I, when we were talking, I, I think um, my audience especially is would be really excited to hear about it. And I know, yeah, I'm excited to try one. I was looking at getting you a prototype, but 
I might have a full-on working sample soon enough that that might even beat the prototype to you. I've had some friends in the cycling world trying out. We have like four or five different iterations out there, but I just got confirmation literally right before this podcast that the final version of the fork is out and tested and I'm I'm getting a first sample to photograph here in the next week. Um, But the beef cake is a... A fork we made. It's a rigid carbon fork for uh, adventure bike packing, specifically, I'm going to say kind of gravelly. It's definitely got a gravel bike's geometry in mind in the fact that it's got a uh, axle to crown of uh, 425 millimeters. So it fits that length of a gravel fork or just a little bit of taller than it. Uh, the new Kona gravel bikes that are coming on the market are right at that axle to crown length. But um, I work with more than just Rin Sports. I was working with Mahal Bike Works out of Southern Washington for many years on an expedition gravel bike. And not just gravel like pave or like a groomed forest service fire road gravel bike, but like a gravel bike meant for the Baja Divide or the Tour Divide. Um, having, you know, rode the Baja Divide, most people do it on mountain bikes. and it really is a gravel route. It's just the worst possible gravel you can find out there. And I've really gravitated to those routes. I love the really heinous, gnarly, dilapidated, forgotten mining road backcountry routes uh, out there. And having road routes like the Baja Divide and some of Eastern Oregon and Idaho and the Tour Divide, I was just thinking over many years that, you know, I'd really rather be on a gravel bike's geometry, but I really need a lot more tire volume. So the Beefcake is a fork that takes all of that into consideration. It's got a gravel bike's axle to crown, and yet it fits a 27 and a half by a 3.0 tire or a 29 by 2.6 tire. It's got tons of mounting eyelets, both for a rack and for fenders and for cages and bottle bosses. Uh, they were factory tested in a lab to five kilograms each, which is a huge amount of weight for a carbon eyelet to hold. Because of that, our material strengths need to be higher. The fork will ride a bit stiffer than than a normal gravel bike fork would be in carbon because we do we did make the fork composite more robust. Um, but when you add in a bigger tire, it becomes more compliant. And there's tons of mud clearance. That was a huge, really important consideration. A lot of the bike packing I do in Eastern Oregon, if it rains, you are just straight up screwed in death mud land. So I wanted a 3.0 tire with plenty of mud clearance. Uh, and you run into some real physical limitations if you're thinking about reducing the height of the fork blades to get the front end down more to meet that gravel standard. But yet you're increasing the tire volume. At a certain point, you can only reduce the size of the fork so much before you're literally running the head tube straight into the tire itself. So yeah, we, we have to get creative. I think that's going to appeal to a lot of people, you know, expedition cycling, man, a Swiss army knife bike that can go anywhere, do anything. I mean, that's, that's just cool. And 
the logo on it. I can't wait for people to see it because it's a good looking fork and uh, the logo is is uh, spot on. Y'all, I, can I say it's got a, a beef, a, a steak inside of a cake or <laughs> I don't know how to put it. It's like a cherry yeah, on top of a yeah. cake, except for it's a beef on top of a cake. <laughs> you know, if people know or follow my Instagram channel, Renaissance Cyclist, I all my bikes are loud. They scream. They're really bold. And I I don't really like the counterculture kind of aspect of things. I, I didn't come into the sport from racing, um, although I do help run and direct some races these days. But, um, you know, I, I wanted something that's reflective of the fun. And um, so, yeah, we, we have a uh, it's a brightly colored on an all like Matt Black blacked out midnight fork, this brightly colored big cake with a huge piece of steak that slammed into it. Actually, the name's funny because I sent out some prototypes and I was just calling it the Expedition Gravel Fork. And some prototypes I sent out, people started calling it the Beefcake Fork. And I was like, well, I got to do what the people are telling me. If multiple people have serendipitously somehow called this the Beefcake, I'm just going to run with it. Oh, hell yeah. No, I think it's spot on. I love everything about it. I like the thoughtfulness that has gone into designing it from all aspects to, you know, the way it looks and the the design and everything. So yeah, be on the lookout, folks. I know I've got my eyes peeled for that one. Yeah, real quick here for your listeners. We'll probably start pre-sales maybe even by the time this podcast airs. If not, then really soon. Um, and for either the beefcake or any other rim product if you use bod that's capital b o d 10 you get 10 percent off your full order at rinsports.com unlimited use just for you guys unlimited use for now yeah thank you thank you so y'all go over to rinsports is it rinsports.com sorry let's make sure we get that right it is yep rinsports.com the beefcake, we're supposed to start shipping the first ones in September. And right now, our limitation of quantity is 40 a month. So get in while the, the getting's good. And the one le- last feature that's really cool about the fork is that it's got this um, dropout ecosystem where you can change it from 15 millimeter through axle to a 12 millimeter through axle which was important to me to have something that's easily swappable because I had a dynamo wheel set that I like to run some of the time and one's 15 and one's 12. Uh, And that was always a a real pain in the rear for me, either having to switch out the fork entirely or dealing with, with dropouts that might be adaptable, but are a real pain to change out. So we actually spent probably half the time of this entire forks design on the dropout ecosystem. Y'all are thinking, man, I'm telling you, um, super excited about that fork. I'm glad you mentioned that. I, I completely forgot about that feature. So people are going to be hearing me say Ren Sports a lot more coming up. And uh, we're going to have you come back on. And we've started doing these little mini podcast uh, ad things at the beginning of episodes. So, you know, you're going to be coming back and uh, sharing more stuff about Ren Sports, all kinds of stuff, right? So uh, we'll be hearing more from you. But do you think it's a good time to switch over to uh, Renaissance Cyclist and some uh, some Rangerin? Absolutely, changing my hat. 
Ready to go. Well, what came first, man? I know you're super passionate about, you know, public lands, recreating outdoors. What came first for you, that passion or cycling? Definitely that passion. Cycling has really just been a mechanism to enjoy that. I didn't grow up doing anything really in the outdoors. I grew up in South Central Missouri, but I came from a family where we lived on a small farm and the the concept of camping was really like, why would you go camping? We, we, <laughs> we live in the woods. I didn't learn to ride a bike until I moved to Alaska at the age of 19. Um, I got really lucky in high school in that when I was 16 years old, I started surveying caves for the USGS and Missouri Speleological Society. And uh, it changed the course of my entire life. I became very much aware of environmental stewardship through caving. Uh, so caving was my gateway sport. My whole life kind of pivoted on on that one activity. What about caving uh, illuminated you to these larger issues? Was it was it just people you're associating with, or were there some direct threats, or, or what was the impetus there? Yeah, there's a lot going on there. So as a young person growing up, I was by far the youngest person doing these cave surveys. Most other people were either in a grad program or graduated. Um, so I had some really great mentors in that. But the real majority of it is is twofold. Uh, one, I, I didn't realize it until I came to Alaska and spent like multiple weeks in the backcountry that the wilderness setting, that whole like detaching from society and plugging yourself in somewhere else occurs in such an expedited manner when you're underground. Not that I had cell phones back whenever I started caving, but there you had to completely totally disassociate yourself from the outside world. You can be a few hours in a cave and exposure is real. An injury could be life or death. And that kind of focus and detachment from normal societal norms uh, was something that I, I learned to crave. And I still crave that detachment. One reason why I love these big remote bikepacking trips it, it gives so much more context to the rest of my life. And, and I come back to reality or society with a much greater appreciation for my bed and the shower and food and light, all that sort of stuff. And <laughs> light. <laughs> um, yeah. Light is very important in, in yeah. the world of none underground who I surveyed. I very much life. I don't think, really is like movies and that you get an aha moment, like a, a light bulb pinging in your head. I can only think of a few of those in my entire life. But one of them was my kind of wilderness ethic. I went and surveyed a cave called Salamander Solstice, which had never been surveyed. It was a, it was actually like a food pantry refrigerator for an old homestead that this, this elderly lady owned. And, um, I, I talked to her and said, you know, we'd like to survey this cave on your property. It had only been documented like 40 years earlier. The name of it was Salamander Solstice because of all the unique species of salamander that only live in caves that were said to be in this cave. And and we were in the cave surveying it and we didn't see any signs of life. And we, we kept continuing on and, and you're literally on your belly crawling through a, a wet stream <laughs> and you're stirring up the sediment and silt. And all of a sudden, the smell of like very intense petroleum was in the air. And uh, 
eventually it got so bad that we bailed and we, we, we didn't finish the survey. Well, one thing that we do is we take the maps and we overlay them on the land and we, and we try and pinpoint how the, the, the underground, which is also our collective water where it goes, how it's meandering because the underground topography is very different than the above ground topography. And where that petroleum smell was, was a, a road that had since been paved since the last time when the cave was named Salamander Solstice. So it was a very, very tangible concept for an 18 year old mind to go, wow, nobody knew who put that road in the ramifications that were going on to the environment. And, you know, not just for the species that live there, but when we went through that cave, we actually saw the metal pipe for a well go through the the ground. So, I mean, that's not just the animals, that's us too. And nobody considered that. So my undergraduate programs in outdoor recreation and, and land management, and I had no doubt by the time I had finished high school that that was what I wanted to devote my life to. So you have a degree in uh, this undergrad or bachelor's or sorry, I never went to school. So I don't even know what they're called. There's like a master's degree and a bachelor's degree. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So uh, my undergraduate degree is in outdoor recreation and land management from Alaska Pacific University. And then my graduate uh, degree is public admin with a focus on public lands from Evergreen State. Okay. So, um, is this a good time to switch over to you entering the Bundyville podcast scandal or maybe not a scandal, but a damn near overthrowing some public lands? Oh, it's certainly scandalous. Yeah. Well, should we set it up a little bit? Um, <clears throat> maybe you should set it up, but uh, I've um, directed my listeners to check out the Bundyville podcast to kind of give a... Um, you know, some context for a portion of this conversation, but do you want to at least kind of set the stage and then bring it to where you entered in? Yeah. Yeah. I'll set the stage for myself and, and, and throw some disclaimers out there because this is an extraordinarily complicated and messy and just super messed up scenario that has so much of a significant backdrop. So um, like you said, uh, if you haven't already listened to the Bundyville podcast by Oregon Public Broadcasting, definitely do that, or at least the first episode, because even though I worked for the government during that right there at the Malheur National Forest, there are so many nuances to the story that uh, you know I'm, I'm hesitant to speak to that level of because it is such an insane thing that happened and there's, there's so many details to it also. Uh, and I, I really want to emphasize this, that, you know, I, I'm not employed by the U S government right now. My statements are my own. I'm not speaking on behalf of the U S forest service or the department of interior. Also, I'm not speaking on behalf of the communities in Eastern Oregon. This really tore a lot of them apart. Uh, it's still something that's very raw. And there are a lot of people um, that I still work with regularly, as I'm sure we'll get into, uh, who would rather the world just never talk about this ever again. Although, oh, wow. you know, while I have immense respect for that, wanting to move on and grow out of this, there's so many lessons to be learned uh, and it's it's really one of the most significant things to happen in public land history of the United States and even anywhere in the world that's ever 
happened. And it's amazing we don't talk about it more. Well, we want to talk about it today uh, because that's exactly right. I mean, you know, it started with Clive Bundy down in Arizona, what, in 2014? And then it found its way up to Oregon. But, I mean, these are these are people that were looking to take lands for their own uh, their own use away from, you know, public lands owners. And, and they were just going to kind of, I don't even know what their full plan was but it wasn't good. Maybe, you know, yeah. And with the, with the Bundy's themselves, which is broader than just the occupation, you know, they, they have a specific worldview that's also shaped by almost cult like religious beliefs. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to bring the podcast down that rabbit hole <laughs> that far. Cause we can, we can easily get derailed for two hours just on, on those concepts. But, you know, this is, this is a broader theme because, you know, a lot of people are like, well, the Bundys are, you know, down in Nevada. What are they doing up in Eastern Oregon? And it really is, it talks to, a broader conversation of, of how we are managing lands in the West and the, is what a lot of people see as the inequities of, you know, if you live in rural and I worked in rural places for the U S government, um, by the end of my career, I was doing rural economic development and, and PR in, in various parts of the country. When you work in small rural Western communities, they look at the East Coast and they say, you know, look at Rhode Island and, and how much of Rhode Island is public land. Well, like almost none. And you look at Oregon or Utah, it's like Utah is like 80 percent public land. And when people who are living in a remote town look at that, they see an inequity of we don't have the ability to monetize our land the way the East Coast did. And this is a multi-generational worldview. The United States is so incredible having worked for the government all over the place from Alaska to the Midwest to the West. There are so many nuanced subcultures in the United States and land and how we use land is so much more of a regular mental exercise if you grew up in the West than if you grew up in the Eastern half of the United States. Um, so that, that, that's really what it comes down to. I'm fascinated by these conversations by large part because there's so much I don't know. I mean, dealing with these issues is, is a foreign concept to me being in a, in a state with very little public land. You know, we just don't <laughs> run into these same kinds of issues. So take us there, man. I don't know. You know the story better than I do, but, um, I'm curious how you got yourself intertwined with, you know, this big coup? Yeah, yeah, this um, militant takeover of a public parcel of land. Yes. So, so it's 2016, the beginning of the year, and there's some drama in and around Burns, Oregon, which if you don't know where Burns, Oregon is, is that's in like the central eastern part of 
of Oregon. And if your mind immediately goes to Portland and big rainforests, you know, you're in the totally wrong part of, of Oregon. <laughs> Eastern Oregon and Eastern Washington are totally different beasts. And there's a sense of discontentment in the Eastern parts of these states that so much of the representation of them comes from some big cities on the Western side of the Cascades. So there's already kind of this discontentment occurring. So there's some folks that are charged with arson because of how they are managing their grazing lands and uh, not to go down that road too far. They're charged with with arson and, and given a jail sentence. These are the Hamids out of Burns and the Bundy family hears about this and they had already had a standoff, an armed standoff in Nevada that the government basically had bowed out of. So they were really emboldened by this. Yeah, I think that's worth touching on because I think most people will know about that initial standoff with with that was Clive Bundy. Um, and what year was that again? 2014, 2015? A, yeah, 2014, about a, a little less than a decade ago. So, yeah. That I mean, that story made national news. And I mean, they legitimately put a stand. Um, so there was grazing issues and... and uh, you know, he owed some money and it was, you know, his cattle were grazing on public lands. And it's my understanding that, you know, the government came in to get the cattle off and they had an armed standoff there. And, and I mean, the armed militia won. I mean, no, I don't believe any shots were fired, but essentially not worth it. You know, those grazing allotment, it's, it's, is insane if the American people truly realized how much the, cattle industry is subsidized with their public lands. But, and a lot of people, you know, the, the national park service is so good just to take like a step back. So good at branding that most people think of our public lands through the lens of like the national park service, like Yellowstone and Yosemite, that it's all Mm -hmm. this, this preservation, like you come to enjoy this park for everyone, but the vast, vast, vast majority of our public lands are not even contiguous. They're a patch quilt where you know there there are pieces of public land public land that are entirely surrounded by rancher land you know you're not going to go and visit that square parcel of blm land at any point because there's no public access and it's meant to serve a broader agenda the bureau of land management u.s forest service and some of our other public lands and even national parks have certain write-ins that allow resource extraction so you know, it, it, it's not necessarily a black and white. Do we allow cattle to graze or do we not? It, it has a much more nuanced conversation of how much do we allow? How much does it cost? How do we make it equitable for democracy? Because really what we're talking about is how do we run democracy? And that's what the Bundy's argument is. They're on one side of the extreme. And having come off that armed standoff, you know, they were feeling emboldened and given their religious beliefs and background were actually feel as if they were divinely called to do this. So when there was um, inequities as they saw it going on in Burns, they showed up and eventually there was an armed standoff and takeover of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge. And the Wildlife Refuge had a much more stringent policy when it came to how we balance out access 
for ranching because it is one of the most important bird sanctuaries in the world. It's crazy bikepacking in this this part of the country, just how desert-like Eastern Oregon is. Most people don't realize that there's portions of Eastern Oregon that look like Death Valley. Uh, and then just like one mountain range over is this huge wetland for birds. So, <laughs> and, and right next to this giant wetland, you could go through like the Roaring Springs Ranch and bike through it for four or five hours straight because it's like a hundred miles long. It's, there's a, a lot of ranching there and a lot of very important critical habitat. So uh, there's a tug and pull that's been going on for generations here. So the Bundys wanted to, to capitalize on that. Now, when this standoff occurred in early 2016, you know, if you worked as a park ranger or forest service ranger in public lands at all, you know, it was something that we all were watching play out every day and we talk about every day. I was at the time the backcountry permitting office manager for Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore in um, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is a mecca for fat biking and ice climbing. I loved it there. But uh, my background, like I said, uh, is in land management. Uh, I had at this point had more than a decade under my belt. And I also was a trained law enforcement officer for the U.S. government. So given my background in law and public relations, uh, I was a shoeing candidate to go and work on this assignment. So I came in at the very end. So is this something you sought out or you were just, uh, you were hired to do? They, they sought you out? There was a job announcement and I decided to apply for it. This was after Lavoy Finnegan was shot and killed on the Mount here National Forest. So the occupation occurred on wildlife refuge land, but adjacent to that is Bureau of Land Management land and U.S. Forest land. So they're all pretty much, you know, interconnected and woven. Uh, and then the the occupation actually spilled out like the it's so complicated. The the occupationists were heading to a different county to meet with a sheriff who supported the arm to take over. Because again, the communities out here were split with whether they wanted the people there or not. So they were going to meet with this Patriot sheriff of the United States. And, and there was an armed standoff with state troopers and FBI. And um, long story short, one of the people who was also a local Lavoy Finnegan was shot and killed on the forest and the forest needed, you know, more hands on deck. Dude, I watched that. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but there's an hour long video of that whole thing. The police department there locally held a huge press conference and and like went through the whole thing step by step. But you really get a um, feel for like the magnitude of this whole situation and the tension and everything. Yeah, when you take a step back and you realize that like law enforcement was split between like local law enforcement and state and FBI, and then you got the park rangers and the Forest Service and the Department of Interior and the U.S. Agriculture, um, you know, it is what what was the split? What you know, if you were on this side, I mean, yes, okay, so you're you're with the the Bundys. You're on this side. You're on which? I mean, what was the split? What were they fighting over? Quote unquote. Well, and there was a lot of different ways you could split it, even because um, you know there were plenty of people that are in Eastern Oregon that say, yeah, sure, we don't feel like land management is equitable. Yeah, we do support our ranchers more. 
than what they're getting right now. And we don't think that the U.S. government is handling this fairly. But we also don't support the occupation. And I think that speaks to a, a, a fair number of people out there, uh, including some of the like law enforcement. But then you have people like Sheriff Glenn Palmer of Grant County, the county immediately to the north, who was all about this armed takeover that the government has, the federal government has no right to even, even own those lands. And then, you know, I came in right after that tragic event occurred and worked public affairs for the Malheur National Forest. And, you know, where Lavoie Finnegan was shot and killed, they set up um, a roadside memorial. And again, this is where I'm speaking for myself and not the U.S. government. But, you know, there's a there's actually a policy that you can't go and set up a roadside memorial if somebody dies on on Forest Service land. So if if your brother-in-law sadly is killed in a car wreck on Forest Service land, you can't go and set a memorial up along the side of a Forest Service road. But people do it anyways. And that is a law that is generally not enforced. So they set up this. Patriot camp, this memorial for Lavoie Finnegan. And, you know, the government says, okay, well, now we're going to enforce that really aggressively. And then there's a 14 day stay limit on any parcel of public land. Well, if you're outside of Salt Lake City on a Forest Service land, they're going to be paying really close attention to squatters. And if you're camped out for more than 14 days, you're definitely going to get sighted and removed. But in Eastern Oregon, people came and set up their hunting camps like a month early. It was normal status quo behavior to not really aggressively enforce this as uh, no longer the chief or the superintendent of the Mount here. But back whenever I worked there, you know, the force was described as this is not a boutique force service unit, as in this is not where you come like the Deschutes to go ride mountain bikes. This is a working forest. We have timber and grazing and mining allotments, you know, we do do outdoor recreation, but but we're not that kind of, you know, parcel of public land. Were the park rangers just kind of going along with that or or was it not being enforced because of a lack of park rangers to even police it? And, and I mean, usually it's a big swath of land and you don't have very many rangers. That is an excellent question. And it's a combination of all of the above. Uh, I mean, one, it was just this area is so big and remote and we do have so few staff that, you know, I, I feel like for the most part, if, if somebody is able to have a conversation, you know, you really shouldn't be camping here for more than 14 days. That's kind of how it was always taken care of. Um, you know, somebody died on this road, you know, we're not going to sweat that the family has closure and puts up across there because there's 10 vehicles that go down this road a month. We have 10,000 miles, literally 10,000 miles of gravel road on that one forest with like a road crew of like a dozen, if that, and virtually <laughs> no budget, uh, which is one reason why the cycling there is so amazing. But when I was working public relations there, we had an administration change from Obama to Trump. I mean, that was a huge change in how we were directed to deal with this. It was such a big issue that we were having you know, conflicting statements from region to Washington, you know, at some points, you know, the government would rather you just look at a wall and stare at flies and not do anything because we don't want to upset anyone. 
And then other times it's like, no, we're going to, we're going to take action. We're going to remove this camp. And at 14 days, we're going to arrest everyone, which my own personal view was, well, if you haven't been enforcing those laws for a generation, then you really can't in good faith enforce them right now in this one specific instance. Not that I'm siding with the occupationalists, but you're essentially giving, you're making martyrs out of everyone and you're giving them a bigger megaphone to tell the world about, which uh, here I am at my own fault talking about it. <laughs> yeah, it's fuel to the fire. It didn't need to happen. There was bigger, probably bigger fish to fry. There was. And during this whole thing, you know, wildfires that, that fall prior to this had wildfires are just such a huge problem, obviously, but, but most of the general public doesn't realize that the U.S. Forest Service does the brunt of the fiscal responsibility of wildfire fighting in the United States. And there's a thing called fire borrow where when, when the forest service runs out of money, they start borrowing from other programs. And one of the hardest things I've ever had to do is lay off my staff because my environmental education program where I guaranteed people jobs through winter no longer had funding um, because we were fighting so many fires. So before I came on board, on the Malheur, we already had a wildfire that burned down on the forest a number of properties right around where this occupation was going on. And so there was discontentment contentment there with the locals. So, you know, to, to, to pivot here, unless you have more questions to the cycling aspect of all this and how this ties in. I guess I just have one more question. Like you said, your role was public affairs. Is that correct? Yes. Can you describe like day to day? Were you ever in? I mean, I, obviously, I mean, tensions are still, I was watching YouTube videos last night till late at night, just kind of honestly, I just watched one and uh, just started binge watching. Um, I mean, you know, this is still topical. The community is still dealing with it. Um, so I know that tensions were high when you were there. What, what was your actual day-in-the-life job like? It was really stressful for so many people involved. You, you don't come into a rural community and make a good wage as like a public affairs officer and not be on call and seen and visible everywhere you go, whether you're on or off the clock. My role when I came on board was making sure that all of our public-facing offices were safe and secure and doing their jobs and informing the public. Um, whenever I came on board, they were putting up all of this. It looked good because it was like nice metalwork of like trees and stuff. Um, but it was basically separating the uh, general public and then the, the rangers who worked with them, the Forest Service staff. So it was, it was like essentially fencing in disguise and the, the trees that looked all pretty and metal were pointed at the top because they're trees, but they were also meant to where people couldn't climb over them underneath my desk. I had a button that went and, and called, you know, the local state police because the county police said that they weren't going to show up to help us. I mean, there were really high tensions and people were legitimately like scared. And I went back and forth very, very, vehemently with some of my supervisors who wanted more and more separation between the, the general public and our staff. And I was very much against that. If there was going to be an armed takeover of the facility, there wasn't going to be a ton I could do no matter what. <laughs> um, I just didn't see how putting more of a distance between me and the people of the community, how it's going to help mend these bridges. Yeah. 
Well, as a conversationalist or a person that believes heavily in conversation, I couldn't agree more. You can't solve problems by building a wall. <laughs> yeah, I I uh, I started trying to move meetings outside of our federal offices to the chambers, to churches, to to places in town, cafes. Uh, I mean, there's not a lot of anything if you go out to John Day or or Burns, Oregon. Uh, you know, if you're biking in the region, um, which we'll get into, uh, they might feel like metropolitan areas by comparison because it is just so remote. This is one of the most remote government work sites in the lower 48 states. But uh, I was doing my best to fight both not only the pressures from outside to within, but within the agencies itself, I felt like. My personal beliefs and how I do public affairs and education, I did not see how giving into fear, I could understand the fear. I couldn't see how giving into the fear of the scenario would make anything better because there was so much rebuilding that needed to go on after this. And obviously, there were already problems that pre-existed this occupation or else it would never have happened. Oh, for sure. How long did you work there? Uh, two and a half, three years-ish. Yeah, it's this whole time in my life is such a blur because not only was my job crazy and the administration changed, I worked under... Bush, Obama, and Trump, and the, the Trump administration also, while on the in this part of the world, was just such a more dramatic change in my life than than between Bush and Obama. But um, my wife was also diagnosed with with really aggressive cancer at this time, and we we're in such a remote part of the country that it was it was very difficult to get any sort of meaningful care. So my life was just really spiraling. I've commuted to work every day for my entire adult life. Part of the other reason why I moved out here, besides the fact that I thought, wow, this is really going to be like the be all end all to making my career. Everybody will know within the government, the assignment that I was on. I also got to live on the, the Trans Am route, which goes right through John Day, Oregon, and the Old West Scenic Bikeway, because Oregon is an amazing state that has a scenic bikeway program. And I got to ride 30 miles every day on the most spectacular, one of the most spectacular roads in the entire T of North America. And normally that would leave me so refreshed returning to work and returning oh, home yeah. after work. And yeah, it sounds 15 miles each way, huh? Yeah. So it was 15 miles each way. Yeah. It was like 32 mile uh, commute every day. Yeah. Usually 15 miles is... You'll, you're feeling rider's rain after 15 miles. Yeah, and no, I, I remember getting, and I'm not a real angry person. It's one reason why I like doing education and public affairs is it takes a lot to rile me up. And yeah, I can remember just coming home really angry at the world, even after all that riding. So yeah, life was throwing a lot at me. And um, one of the best things that came out of this for me was um, the community of Burns on the tail end of this coming into to summer 2016 had so much more leeway from the government to do what it needed to do to heal. And so often I'm frustrated with our inability to uh, work together as government agencies or to work mm -hmm. with from federal to state to municipal to cross the board because 
if you're coming out to Eastern Oregon or anywhere to enjoy your public lands, you probably don't care if it's the Forest Service or National Park Service or state or municipal land that you're going to. You just want to go see the cool things. Yeah. And we're, we're so often boxed in because we don't have enough staff and we're all in our own heads and we do become, you know, just the bureaucratic cog turning that it's hard, I think, for a lot of federal employees to take a step back and, and remember that the people we serve don't see the world through our lens. The, the community got to take a step back and say, you know, it's going to take all of us working together to right this ship and to bring the community back together. And we've really got to identify how we can do that with virtually no money and no staffing and something that transcends all of our agencies. And that is also like economically viable and, and, and timely. So we started looking at hunting. You're looking for a unicorn. Yeah. We're looking for that unicorn and all, and all of the amazing things you can do in Eastern Oregon. And I know this is painted the region and not the, the rosiest light, but the Eastern Oregon is so geologically and biologically just incredible. And all the places I've traveled for work, there's two places that continuously draw me back and it's Alaska and Eastern Oregon. And when people were asking, what is it that we're going to like try and tell the world gravel cycling floated way up on the list or cycling did. And then I was brought in as a specialist, both because of my job, but also because of my passions to help better isolate what cycling in Eastern Oregon looks like and how we can build a narrative around it. And if possible, how we can not only create economy out of it, but how we can build bridges and overcome this divide we have. How we, can we create civic democracy out of outdoor recreation in this browbeaten part of the country? I mean, that's a huge, insane task. Yeah, I have a couple of questions. One, how much of this discussion that the community was having was about um, showcasing the beauty of the, the region and, and kind of healing from you know, all this divisiveness that has been going on. And I'm also kind of a little bit surprised to hear that it sounds like somebody else started a conversation about cycling and then brought you in. So I'm curious who that was. Yeah. So that was some heads, my supervisors that brought me in, you know, the, the agency works at a regional level. And when we're looking at things regionally, we can look around where we are. Okay, Burns is dead center between Bend and Boise. Okay, well, what's going on in Bend and Boise? Because Bend and Boise are both just some of the highest growing venues in the United States. Huge population explosion where Eastern Oregon, right in between them, has had 50 years of population decline. So you have this insane population growth, booming economies. The Deschutes National Forest, which used to look like them out here, is now all of a sudden overrun. And what are people doing there? Well, most of the people there are mountain biking. So, you know, they, the nuances of what kind of cycling people were doing weren't entirely hashed out when I came on board with this project. But they were just looking at surrounding forests and saying, where are things really well? What communities is growing around that? And also, when you look at it from a, if you're a regional 
recreation program manager, or you're figuring out how you can address the needs of more than just one unit, you can say, okay, the Deschutes is overrun with cyclists. What if we help spread the load? You know, we need to change things on the Meliere. What if we start bringing in, you know, people over from the Deschutes by, by, by developing these resources? So when I came on board, there was conversations with IMBA, the International Mountain Bike Association, and, and how we were going to build single track and stuff like that. Well, yeah. single track, and I've worked on mountain bike projects on public lands. Um, and there, there's, they're, they're so long incoming you have to do the in the environmental assessments and then you need you know hundreds of thousands of dollars and then you need a huge volunteer base and we had none of that we didn't have the money we didn't have the volunteer base and we sure as heck didn't have time like people needed to feel a transition immediately because this region was toxic and paint a picture for was there even a cycling community in that region and and if so what did it look like Somewhat. Um, so in John Day, which is north of, of Burns, had a little bit more, which ironically now Burns is the faster growing cycling destination out here. But there was a small group of folks, mostly government employees. They called themselves the Strawberry Striders. They were mostly <laughs> road cyclists. But um, John Day at that point was a little bit more accepting of, I think, cycling tourism because the Trans Am and the Old West Scenic Bikeway had thoroughly sunk in their roots. And I think ranchers had come to see and realize that, that, oh, these, you know, granola eaten cyclists aren't actually changing our way of life. They're just biking through and spending <laughs> money. Yeah. So that had enough time in Eastern Oregon that it had come to be accepted. And I have learned at this point too, that in rural communities, sometimes it's especially places like Along, uh, like in Eastern Oregon, there, there's so many nice government jobs that have a constant rotating door that the community doesn't really embrace anything until after it's settled in for a while because they're just yeah. used to people coming and going. So that had sunk its roots in. So there was a little bit of something there to work with. But, you know, I made some enemies with some very dedicated cyclists in the region by coming in and saying, you know, no, we don't want to to try and get these IMBA grants because the topography might be great, but, and we might even get the grant, but first of all, why, how are you going to make somebody stop? Who's going between Bend and Boise just to go mountain biking? They're meccas. They're not going to stop and backwaters burns to, to go mountain bike in a trail. That's one hour off the beaten path and you're never going to maintain it. And it's going to take 10 years to implement so did you have a counter proposal? So yeah, my counter proposal and, and I'm coming into this as somebody who's been bikepacking and adventure cycling now for over half a decade. When I moved to Eastern Oregon, I was really distraught that there wasn't more bikeable trails because I was pretty much just a trail biker, cross country, enduro, and I had no interest in road and gravel was just meh. But with nothing else and all the stress, and especially when my spouse started going to having to spend weeks on end away from me uh, at cancer treatment in California, I found myself with a insane need 
to just ride. And I started riding gravel and riding gravel and then doing 70 mile days and a hundred mile days. And I quickly came to realize that this was the best gravel cycling I'd ever encountered. It was something totally different than in other parts of the country that um, another weird political thing that goes on in Eastern Oregon is like, I was on the Hiawatha uh, in the upper peninsula of Michigan. We'd do a log sale, a timber sale. The road would be open for the timber harvest. And then after the timber harvest was done, the road would be closed. But in Eastern Oregon, those roads were left open every time a new one was made. And the backlog of wow. maintenance on the roads just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew and grew, and grew until until it's a huge political and social problem. But for us adventure gravel cyclists, old shitty roads are like gold. Yeah. It's like a blank canvas, man. Oh my goodness. Yeah. You could live your entire life on just the Malheur National Forest, let alone all the other surrounding lands, which are look exactly the same and bike every day. You said 10,000 miles. Yeah. Just on that 2 million acre forest. Yeah, that's insane. That's what I mean. I mean, you can create anything there. You know, you can spend a lifetime creating the perfect bike route. I became obsessed with that. Like that was every ounce of free time I had. That was what I was doing. So when I was brought into this as like a, a strategic specialist, I was just straight up told people, you would be the world's biggest fools if you tried to make this into a mountain biking town because you are the gravel capital of the world. And it's the biggest growing sector of cycling still is. And uh, you don't have to do environmental protection studies on that's already all happened. And you don't even have to maintain them. Yeah. I mean, it solves so many issues. And right. the vast majority of the world's wilderness or the United States wilderness study areas are all in this region, which is another political conflict, which is, are we going to create a whole bunch of new wilderness areas? The locals really don't want it. And this was one interesting area where environmentally focused cyclists could actually find political footing with some of the locals in the fact that so much of the cycling would be locked out if they became wilderness areas, because just like on your last podcast, you can't even bring a bike into a wilderness area, even yeah. if you're not using it. So we began to strategically look at what would cost the least, what would change the narrative the most, and potentially most importantly, what could help galvanize outsiders and insiders within the community and create a conversation where we are actually realistically doing kind of what the occupationalists were doing, which is trying to have a conversation about how we manage public lands. Now, they did it totally wrongly in an insane, terrible way that I in no way support. But really what we're talking about is, is a conversation about civic democracy and where's the push and pull of land management. And up until this point, it's kind of been government agents doing their own thing without whole, whole lot of the community buy-in outside of the normal status quo. So in order to help expedite this, we decided that a bike race was the best way to get people from around the country to take note. And we kind of actually used the occupation, at, at least at, fir at first, even though we didn't want to talk more about the occupation, it was good marketing. And the fact that it's like, 
you know, come and support the public lands in this place that was just hit so hard. Show your support by coming and riding this this route. That doesn't sound like a manipulative or like a sneaky way to promote it. No, we were totally transparent. Yeah, you're just like, hey, you know, this happened, but there's some amazing things here. We want to introduce you to them. I mean, it was more of a conflict within the community of whether we even say that or not. You know, if we're trying to get past this, are we even going to bring it up? It's going to be something that is on everybody's mind if they're going out there. Yeah, I think it's better to bring it like don't hide things, right? In this day and age, people know things and uh, not to say it would be super manipulative, but I mean, if that happened, I always think you should at least acknowledge it. You don't have to, you know, do give a whole dissertation, but at least acknowledge it. Yeah, well, and we've come to embrace that more and more to a certain extent. So when we build trails with the government and even when, you know, bike parks build trails, they build features that kind of set the tone for everything else. So that's like a filter. If you're going to build a black diamond trail, you're going to start it with a really hard feature so people know what to expect. It's kind of filtering out the, the right rider for the environment. Well, we decided to use Eastern Oregon's rugged backcountry-ness to our advantage as a filter as well, because we thought nobody's going to come here unless we do something really grand, unless we make really bold statements. So out the gate, we said, this is the hardest single day bike race, gravel bike race in the country. We did a 130 mile route that follows historic cattle drive throughout most of it. So calling back to that cattle heritage and trying to talk about shared public lands values and, and their historic uses. Also, one of the most amazing parts about riding in this part of the country is that unlike so many other places, if you do a 130 mile ride, you're going to go through desert, sagebrush, aspen. You're going to go above tree line to almost tundra like environments. There's so much biological and um, geological diversity out of Burns that it will blow your mind. So I really wanted to showcase that in the route. Yeah, that's hard to believe in only 130 miles. I mean, I've done plenty 130 mile trips and um, that's that's excessive is what that is. Yeah, when uh, Bike Portland did an article on it, they called it like the the bike of the 12 soils because yeah, they talked about great. how wow. the, the soil was constantly changing. And, and of our gravel, like half of its natural surface Like it's not even really, it's just like. They just cleared off some big boulders and some trees or whatever, but. And that's that's it. There's almost like some slick rock like portions. And, and we got really lucky in the fact that some folks from cycling teams in Portland who grew up in Eastern Oregon were like, there's, there's no way there's this biking event in Burns. How is that a thing? And we had some heavy hitters like Seth Patla had won Sea Otter came out and wrote it the first year. First year, 20 participants, really low number, but a handful of the right. What was the first year? Uh, so that's 2017. Oh, man. So you, you like, this happened fast. Because you this got there in 2016, really right? Wow. Okay. So that speaks to the speed, the difference between you know, single track. And and then, you know, we've seen Arkansas do a good job. A lot of places are are realizing, God, Emporia, Kansas. I mean, there's so many places that are realizing to utilize what's already there, you know? Totally. Yeah. And in Kansas, you know, we, part of our marketing was you're not in Kansas anymore. 
Um, <laughs> we still do that. And what's the name of the race? Yeah, it's the Skull 120. If you go to www.skullgravel.com, you can go and check out the race venue. And how much of this was your, I mean, is this your baby or was this a collaborative effort of a, a bunch of rangers? There's or no how- way I could have done it on my own. I will say I'm somewhat of the the brainchild, but I had people that helped me make the route. And I mean, it's a huge effort on so many, so many people's parts, including the government agencies that would normally never be involved to this extent in a bike race. Nowhere yeah. else. Like I, I got to reach out to companies when I was literally a forest service employee and say, Hey, Stan's wheels, astral wheels, you know, are you want to support this bike race? And they're like, how are you emailing me on a <laughs> forest service header? Because like, yeah, how the is government that gave us a longer leash. That's crazy. I have a buddy. I mean, I have a friend that works. He, he's a park ranger here in Texas and I want to do a bike packing event on uh, just a ride, you know, out in Big Ben, the state park. And he can't even go because he's an employee. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. Crazy? So, so to put that, to put that in the contrast and, you know, I've worked with usually I'm moving like the MO, my memorandum of understanding and just life in general up until this point was go to a rural community or whatever community move there for work, join a local bike club, help them write their permits and then leave. And then five years later, see that, oh, that event is finally taking off or that trail is finally breaking ground. So the, the contrast here was just so crazy. And it would have never been like this had the occupation not happened. And when we put on our events, like the people at the aid stations that are helping you are wildfire firefighters. They're like got the big fire truck rigs pouring your water. It was such an incredible thing to be involved with. I mean, Smokey the Bear still shoots the gun at the beginning of the race. We treat it like an incident command. It's run like no other bike race in the United States. Um, We have an incident command trailer and we're treating it like a wildfire is blazing through town, except instead of a wildfire, we're dealing with a bunch of racers and we're, we're seeing where everybody's at. The route is so complicated and crazy and really hard that we jokingly talked about amongst ourselves that if a if a local bike club had come to us with the permit to do a race and said i want to do this we would have just laughed and said there's no way but because we did it ourselves we were able to make something really crazy happen has this ever happened before that the government puts on uh, you know, a race, a park service puts on a race like this. I'm, I'm trying to put on a race or I am putting on one in East Texas, uh, on two national forest properties. And uh, you can do up to 50 people with no permit. And I'm having a hell of a time getting, you know, a permit to get another 50 people on there, you know, and uh, again, so here we're seeing, you know, the park office government is often involved or is involved in that they're working potentially with a nonprofit or a chamber of commerce. And they're involved in that like roundabout way. And if you got the right staff with a vetted enough race and all the T's are crossed and dots, I's are dotted, you know, you might get some places where the government is really involved, but I, to my knowledge, there's never been an event like this where we still have, the regional heads of the agencies come and talk to people at the start of each race. And before the night before we do the race, we actually go to right outside where the occupation was at the wildlife refuge. And we go to a rancher's 
property who's opened it up to the cyclists and they literally kill a cow and serve us food. And they talk about how they've been grazing on that land and just to like, they're happy to share it. And, but it's more than just a pretty place that this is part of the heritage. And we have the Burns Paiute tribe talk about, uh, give a blessing at the beginning of race and talk about how they've historically been there for thousands of years. So we want people to do something really hard, become very emotionally raw because you're not going to race 130 miles over this kind of terrain without really going through the pain cave. And, And most riders say they've never rode that long alone because even if we have 200 riders, there's a big chance you're going to spend a lot of the day alone because the route is so remote. And we try and just feed all of this information for people to think about. And, you know, the first year was 20 riders, but because it was so hard, you know, by year three, we had Barry Wicks of Team Kona racing there who was interviewed by Red Bull about the event and said he'd never raced anything like it before. And uh, when Red Bull did a piece about the event, they called it Common Ground. And the uh, the subtitle was how a bike event is bridging the rural urban divide in America. Wow. And I take immense pride in that. Oh, man, you should. That's um, it's the blueprint. It is a blueprint for how to make all those connections. I love the idea of introducing people to a community, the area, but also um, how you're introducing, you know, the people to the cyclist and the more people that they can get introduced to cyclists, the better, you know, I mean, speaking of that, I mean, how has this event helped to shape that area, the community and how is the community, you know, outside of the park service, but how is the community, you know, these ranchers and all this contention and everything, how, how has it helped that if at all? It sounds like it has. You know, in the Red Bull article, um, they interviewed one of the ranchers and they said, you know, it isn't the difference between you and this lacquer clad cyclist just so from Portland, which is still the majority. The majority of our riders are from Portland. Next most is Seattle the last two years or year before COVID because we didn't have it during COVID. And, um, you know, she said, no, the difference is not that extreme. You know, I, I can tell you only one thing that I wake up every day and do really hard work. And when I look at where those riders go, I know that country like the back of my hand, they are doing hard work. And if we can both do work that hard, then we can both work hard to make this place better. And that was another reason to make this event so difficult is because Burns is very much a pull yourself up from the bootstraps kind of place. And while I don't always agree with that mentality, it does really help galvanize this community. And whether the people of Burns bike or not, there is a sense of community pride in that they are home to this really tough event. And when COVID happened, we had to make the tough call of not having the event last year. We had it this summer, but the year before we did not. And um, there was an immense outcry from the community that they wanted the event. Yeah. Which are who, which was kind of uh, surprising and was cool to see. Surprising because they were in the middle of a pandemic, or surprising just because the community sees no, so much the value. The pandemic in it. politics doesn't doesn't surprise me, but the fact yeah. that, that it was a <laughs> mindful thing. <laughs> They're like, come on! It was a, a 
<laughs> that people were thinking about June and the event and said, you know, we really want this. Like it, it was a something the community missed. And I just got text yesterday or the day before a photo from somebody from Burns. Uh, it was in the, the newspaper and it showed all the growth in the local economy since the race happened this year. And um, we have a permit limit of 200 riders and, you know, we, we sold out within a few months, but um, we tell people that, you know, the, the route is open year round. It's not just a one day event. And this year it's, a, it's also a nonprofit event. Uh, you know, nobody's taking home any money from this. We raised around $15,000 this year. Riders, when we canceled the event from with COVID, riders donated their registration fees to a local food pantry, which did not go unnoticed. And we secured a, what is it, like $27,000 grant in addition to the money we brought in this year to turn the start of the event into a park where people can park their cars and ride the route any time of the year. And we're working now, Department of Transportation and public land agencies to sign the route so that people can park and go on the race route as a multi-day biking trip. You took my next question right out of my mouth. You know, I mean, it sounds like a perfect setting for, yeah, a nice little weekend bikepacking trip. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the event sponsors from the very beginning, uh, another organ-based company is uh, Ride With GPS. They've turned on the pro-level features for the Skull Gravel route from day one so that people can download it and ride it without having to have the pro-level account. I love G- Ride With GPS. Those guys are awesome. Super cool. They've come out and raced the event ever since year two. What is your role with the race now? What's your involvement or title or whatever? I've been co-director from the very beginning. It works out really well to have two people direct it because I don't live in that community. And so much of small rural America, so much of the importance is being there. And so much of the work is handshakes and and that community development. Uh, I couldn't do it by myself uh, living in Alaska. Um, so I do more of the like big visionary kind of concepts and then also like the the advertising and getting the word out. You know, we did such a good job early on. I don't need to do that anymore. I didn't spend a cent on advertising and we instantly sold out. So that's not really much of a problem anymore. I'm going to continue to be a co-director until the community is kind of ready to to take all of it on on their own, which I think that they're mostly there. If somebody said, you know, I, I really can handle this all on my my own, and then I would be amiable to that. But there's been a lot of turnover still, and like the 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 chamber of commerce director has historically been my partner in this, and the events only on what is it year four. We've had three different chamber directors and and a ton of toner. Turn- over with our public land agencies. So there just needs to be a common thread. Well, I mean, you've created something really cool and you don't want, you know, to leave it up to someone coming in and maybe not getting it. You know, you're, you're very, uh, you're well-spoken, you're educated, you know what you're talking about. You understand tensions in the community, you understand cycling and what it can bring. And so, 
it, it makes sense that uh, you'd want to stick around and make and make sure. And uh, yeah, because I mean, it, it it's something. It's it's amazing. I, I you you can't do better, in my opinion, than creating a cycling event for a community that that brings so much positivity, both in goodwill, in education, in you know economy. It just doesn't get any better than that in my book. I am involved with all the monthly chamber meetings still on Zoom in, and just on the last meeting, where there's a new um, guiding and outfitter opening up in the community doing um, potentially bike-based cycling tours or assisted adventures in part because of this momentum. I mean, and the town's like, what is it? Four or 5,000 people, you know, most 5,000 people towns don't have guiding outfitters. And then they're looking at opening a bike shop and they're like, Oh, how do you go about doing that? You know, working in the cycling world now I can help them, you know, get dealer accounts and, um, it's just really cool to see that and to see how many, um, we had what, like 15, uh, junior racers on the 60 from the town. Like you really want to change a community, have the next generation yeah. race the race. Yeah. Get them involved for sure. Cause then they'll just pick up the mantle. It'll be theirs, you know? Yeah, we even have been talking about, you know, doing, uh, since I work with some frame builders again, like, uh, Mahal Bike Works in Southern Washington, the, uh, local high school was talking about, you know, can we do a frame building Votech program? Um, oh, yeah. The town of Burns has an old metalworks mill that is unused. So the, the town's thinking outside the box. And really, when you see, Towns like Lakeview, Oregon, or, you know, Bentonville, Arkansas, that have really just eventually hit like a tipping point where now every conversation has to be about how do we include cycling into that? Yeah. Burns is getting real close and it's all because of this occupation, which is just bonkers. Hey, from lemon to lemonade. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's been wonderful. I'm, very interested in coming up to uh, to ride it. I've never been up to that part of America, and obviously, um, it's high on my bucket list. It's just kind of a far way away. But give me some advice, and anybody else who just wants to go. You said the route's there anytime. Um, what kind of bike do you think is good? And you said the the route is available on Ride with GPS. Any. I, you know, if I was going to go do it, I would definitely do it as a two day trip. Probably, you know, I mean, I just, I, um, I love bike packing. I love just being out there for as long as possible. Heck I might even make it three days, but you know, from a bike packing perspective, um, what do you recommend? Give me some advice. Yeah. On the website for the race, it says 38 C tires need not apply. Um, <laughs> you, you want to go as gravel plus as possible. Again, there's a reason why I built a fork that has a three inch wide gravel tire. Most people casual riding probably would prefer a, like a hardtail 29er, uh, to be honest. But if you have like the new Kona Rove, Kona Sutras, uh, those are excellent bikes. Any of the Fargos or Salsas, you know, adventure line. Really, we took at the year that we put this together, one of the only bikes on the market that really hit the mark for us was like what would a bike race route be that was like built around the salsa fargo so that that's that really was the bike i built the right the route around now there's like the bear claw 
Bojack and all those. But um, anyways, the, yeah, that, that's what I'd, rec- I'd recommend. The first 60 miles are almost entirely uphill. You go all the way up to an actual like fire tower lookout at over 9,000 feet. Uh, if you're from sea level, like you and I are, <laughs> you'll be sucking wind um, for sure. Can you camp up there? Or was it even yeah, safe I to mean, camp up there? No. So what's really cool about Eastern Oregon, this route, and all the other routes I'm making in the region, because this is now just one small piece of a much larger system of of routes, is that you can ride besides ranch land, which does definitely prove to be logistical hurdles when it comes to route building. But once the route is vetted and finished, um, the vast majority of the routes are not just available for camping, but you can disperse camp anywhere. There's some really cool campgrounds along the route, but you can camp literally like 90% of the route. You could just stop anywhere you want and camp, but there's a cool lake along the route. There's a, a lookout tower. That's just amazing. Snow mountain lookout. There was still snow at middle of June when racers went through this year. That sounds like it might be a good way to do it is, uh, if you, if you do a 60 mile climb, essentially, um, that would leave you 70 miles. So you camp up there and, and cruise down. Maybe what do you think? Yeah. If it was a two day trip, that would be definitely how I would, I would do it. I'd probably, I'd either camp slightly on the other side of the snow mountain or probably before it just to have access to water. There's a, there's a really cool natural spring that you can drink from before you get to Snow Mountain Lookout. And then right after it is a, a Delimitment Lake camp, uh, campground, which is a good place to camp. Obviously with a lake, you can go swimming in. It's, uh, Eastern Oregon is such an interesting place to bike pack because I've been touring and building a thousand mile route for the last five years. And I do it every, mid-May to mid-June. And without a single exception, I have been snowed on and been in the 20s and been over 100. So um, you're, you are in the high desert. It gets really cold and it gets really hot in the summer months. Uh, the fall is dry with wildfire season. So really, it's either like late fall after wildfires or like June because there's snow otherwise yeah that's wild that's truly expedition cycling you know it's like that's what i'm picturing with even that 130 mile route is just all the the variety of of terrain and everything that you'll go through it's it's amazing i want to get your advice for anybody who is listening i mean i think the podcast itself is a great example like i said a blueprint of of how impactful cycling can be in a community but you know for people listening that that want to facilitate something maybe similar in their community do you have any advice for how to get started or who to talk to or anything like that that is a great question i think it's important to try and find the movers and shakers in the world around you if you can't really find one then maybe you need to be one to make it happen although it's really hard when you try and tackle something like this alone. You know, having worked with nonprofits most of my career, you know, you go into one community and it's the director of the chamber of commerce. It's just a rock star. And then you come into the next and they haven't done anything (laughs) in five years. Yeah. I don't know what they do, but instead there's a nonprofit 
who works with, you know, friends of them out here or whatever, who are movers and shakers. There's an amazing amount of public servants, even in small rural communities, that we don't realize how many people make our society work. And if you start digging and finding those people, eventually you'll find somebody who wants to push the needle and question the status quo. And those are your your allies and advocates. Uh, one thing that has definitely been something that I've recommended to all nonprofits or people trying to get events going is that if you have a vision that's on federal lands, make it like a multi-tiered project so that your stakeholders don't burn out because the this event and the work we did and the accelerated kind of work we were able to do was a direct result of a really terrible thing in Eastern Oregon. Other places, you're not going to get that sort of expedited service out of the federal government. So I'm not saying don't aspire to do amazing things on federal lands. Those lands are your lands and they're there for that. But you're going to have to buckle up for the long haul and create stakeholders and let people have realistic expectations that that's going to take some time, but that that should not inhibit you from doing smaller projects. The most successful programs and trail networks and nonprofits involved in doing this sort of stuff have a multi-tiered approach where they have big projects that they're tackling that are interagency in aspect or working with federal units. And then there's there's tackling, you know, smaller scale things to build stakeholdership that might be municipal or county level or state level that will help you grow your ability to navigate those waters and create enthusiasm that doesn't have a five year to 10 year time frame. Because realistically, that's kind of what you need to expect with government, big federal government projects. Yeah, man. It sounds like you need help. It sounds like you really need, you know, people to help you, you know, maybe you need to be the champion and maybe you need to be the pointy end and stirring people up, but you need to get the people involved too. It sounds like. Yeah. And if you have a a local government office, whether it's the Forest Service or BLM or National Park Service, there are people's jobs. It is to help facilitate these things. You know, don't take no for an answer because, you know, a lot of the people at the front desk are well informed on, you know, on where are the bathrooms and campgrounds and that sort of thing. How do I, you know, pay for this permit? But they may or may not, they might be a seasonal employee, again, who's doing amazing work, but they may or may not know the nuances of, you know, somebody at region or somebody higher up in the food chain's job is to facilitate this sort of community project work. So don't take no from one person as your answer if that's what you're fed. Look up who is who who is your public affairs officer for that unit and get a hold of them. I'm gonna do it. I am well, I am doing it here here in Texas, um trying to do my little part. And I would echo what you say. I mean, one thing that I have learned is and I think we all have learned is is the impact and the value that not only cycling can bring to our own personal lives, but to even communities, you know, and the, the field is ripe for picking. 
you're you're an excellent example of of it. I mean, you could look at Emporia, Kansas, or Stillwater, Oklahoma, or Bentonville, Arkansas, or uh, God, fucking Western North Carolina. There, yeah. I mean, it just it goes on and on, right? And like. <laughs> yeah, that's why Western North Carolina, Pisgah, exactly. Um, but I mean, it, it, these things matter. And I would encourage people to do something because I think I'm a decent example. I'm just a regular guy. I don't have any major race accolades to my name like you. I just, I'm passionate about um, cycling. I'm passionate about growing the community because I believe in it. I know the value that it has. And uh, it just shows what one person can do or what a little community can do and the, and the value that cycling can bring. So, man, I just, I really do appreciate, you know, you and your efforts and the way that, you know, you approach uh, a difficult situation and, and help turn it into something positive for a community, you know, it should be commended. And so I commend you and I, I'm very grateful that you're a member of this community. Thank you. I appreciate that. And you know, if you if you're hitting a roadblock with whatever amazing thing you're aspiring to achieve, you could always drop me a message on Instagram. I, this is what I do. Yeah, and I mean, you're a wealth of knowledge. And listen, man, we are gonna chat more. I know we're gonna do more podcasts in the future because I mean, there's a million things that you have done. Uh, maybe not a million, but you're you're a very very active guy. You've done a lot. You're doing a lot, and uh, we got a lot more to talk about. But uh, for now, if people want to just get in contact with you, what's the best way for them to to contact you and keep up with you, and maybe even pick your brain? Probably the best way to just drop me any kind of personal inquiries is uh, Renaissance dot cyclist on Instagram. If you don't have Instagram, you can drop me an email. It's the same thing. Renaissance.cyclist at gmail.com. And um, if it's anything about Ren Sports or anything else, uh, it's also Cameron at Rensports.com. Awesome, dude. And if people want to uh, check out more information about that uh, Skull Gravel event, what was the uh, website again? Yep. So it's www.skullgravel.com. Oh, that's easy. <laughs> Super easy. If you, if you just that. Google Skull Gravel, it'll be like probably the the first thing that pops up along with a bunch of articles about it. I am going to get on uh, the website as soon as we get off here. And I just I want to check out some pictures and stuff now that we've talked about it so much. So I'm curious to check it out and maybe start making some plans to try to get up that way. And I, I don't see myself much as a racer, but I see myself going up there to ride it and enjoy it uh, in my way. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, we should um, we should uh, definitely host another conversation about the cap the climax route, because uh, if you're going to make that big, long trip, I got a lot more for you to ride in the region. I hear you, man. I know you're a busy man. Well, thank you so much, Cameron. I really appreciate it. I appreciate Ren Sports uh, for kind of believing in bikes or death. And I feel like there's a lot of symbiosis there, whatever a, a cool <laughs> symbiosis. A lot of, uh, we have a lot of commonality, a lot of the similar values and interests. And, and uh, so I really appreciate that and looking forward to uh, getting to work with you more, both on a professional level and just getting to chat about fun bike stuff. Absolutely. All right, homie. Well, Go ride your damn bike. Will do. You do the same. Thank you. All right, Cameron. Take care, buddy. Yep. Cheers, Patrick. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in today. That's all we got. Thank you, Cameron and Rent Sports for your support and also just for being rad people. 
doing cool shit with bikes. And in bikepacking race news, if you're not aware, Lael Wilcox just started her ITT of the Tour Divide about a couple hours ago as I'm recording this. She has a expressed goal of beating Mike Hall's record of 13 days, 22 hours, something like that, I believe. A very lofty goal. That record has stood for quite some time, um, and she's got some smoke to deal with, and who knows what else. But uh, if you're interested in following that effort, you can track her over at trackleaders.com. They got a link just for her ITT of the Tour Divide. And I, for one, am going to be watching that very closely and wish her a happy and a safe ride. And uh, she's always the first to say that she is going to put out her best effort, and I believe that she will. So good luck, Lael. We will be watching and rooting for you. Don't forget to have fun. All right, I'm trying to think if there's anything else, but uh, this head cold's got my brain kind of slow, going pro slow right now. Speaking of pro slow, uh, we got some new stickers coming, got some new merch, going to be repping that pro slow lifestyle. It's not always about going fast. I like fast people. I like to watch them. I like to watch their dots, but uh, when I get out there, I like to go pro slow. I don't want to miss anything, you know? Uh, so we got some cool new stickers coming and maybe some other stuff. Uh, but I think that's about it. I'm going to wrap this one up so we can get it out to you fine folks. I hope y'all are doing well out there. Stay safe, stay well, stay healthy. And a good way to do that is to go ride your damn bike. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You let that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. 